Well, hello and welcome to Lots to Talk About. Today, we will be talking about finding financial freedom and building the life you desire with Miles Wakeham. Miles is the host of the Unconstrained podcast. He came to the U.S. from Australia in 1989 and has never looked back. Not graduating from high school or heading to college hasn't stopped Miles from becoming a multimillionaire and living the life of his dreams. Let's talk about the keys for anyone to make that happen. With that, I would like to welcome to the show, Mr. Miles Wakeham. How you doing, sir? I'm good. How are you? Oh, not a bad day. Uh, running around, tons of uh, tons of on air time today, so it's been uh, it's been a busy one for sure, for sure. sure. Um, glad to have you here. I think we're gonna talk about some uh, getting to financial freedom and what that really means, and um, maybe some tips on how to think about starting to get there. So. Um, if you don't mind, if you could tell my audience who Miles Wakeham is, um, kind of your your background and uh, where you came from. Yep. Um, well, I'm originally from Australia, from a city called Adelaide. That's uh, where I was born. I'm a child of the 60s, so I'm a bit old, but that's uh, not ever held me back. Um, I lived a childhood of a what I call a free-range kid in Australia. We weren't uh, wealthy. We weren't poor. We were somewhere in the middle and... I was lucky enough to have a bicycle and live by a big valley and parkland, so I spent most of my time out in the country, which is weird because uh, when I was five years old, my mother stuck a violin under my chin and said, kid, you're going to be in the symphony orchestra when you're a teenager, and by the age of 11, I was in the South Australian Junior Symphony Orchestra. So, oh, um, yeah, so I've been lucky enough to have a musical background and aptitude, but all that did was just underscored a lot of things that I saw in life. I mean, if you ever talk to artists and musicians, you know that they never see the world from a standard pragmatic standpoint, and I was no different. But for me, I had one of these weird conflicting right brain, left brain things going on. So the right side of my brain wanted all the attention about, you know, music and warmth and essence and spirit and all that. And the left side of my brain wanted to problem solve and do mathematics and all of that good stuff. So... In order to satisfy the left side of my brain when I was a teenager, I got into electronics that turned into radio technology and eventually turned into computers before there even was such a thing as a personal computer. And then when they eventually started coming out, I gravitated towards that, became a software developer. And by the age of 17, I had my first software company. Um, by the age of 19, I employed half a dozen people to try to teach them how to program and was doing work for governments and that, universities awesome. and everything. So, so you started that up in Australia? Before? Yeah. Yep. I did. I, I got on board with something before it really became a thing. And I think that yeah. was the key to it. It was timing. Yeah. Um, and that's it, been a it, theme. It sounds, it sounds like you started through. digging in and had like a background and then, uh, then it kind of hit and you were already primed the pump to just step right in. Yeah, I mean, when you find yourself in a supply and demand curve that's weighted in your favor, it kind of never hurts. And that's uh, exactly what happened to me. Nice, nice. So you just, did you continue down that software engineer path or entrepreneurship? Or are you, are you still just kind of checked out of that? Or, or are you still doing it? I, I did. I worked in Australia until I was 25. And then I found myself on the streets of Los Angeles, met a girl and got married and then never went back. So at least that's how the idyllic version of the story goes. The, the reality, 
was that I couldn't get a job because I didn't have a college education or even a high school education. So I wandered around the streets of Los Angeles back to my musical background and got into a band and ended up working at Hollywood. And one thing led to another. I got taught the art of recording, um, how to work in big recording consoles and big studios and ended up working Capitol Records for a while. And uh, so I, I had that side of my life going on. So again, my right brain was being properly entertained, but my left brain was still saying, hey, what about me? So I, when I eventually got the right to work, uh, I looked around for jobs as a software developer and, you know, I'd, I'd written billing systems for $5 billion diesel electric submarine manufacturing for the Navy. I'd written software for cryogenic freezer storage lab. So I'd, I'd written software for the Attorney General's Department in my state, <laughs> but none of that mattered. Right, that didn't matter because didn't have a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I said, "Well, what what does every other immigrant do in this country? Well, they just find a way." And I just kept slugging at it, slugging at it. And then, um, weird thing is, one day I ended up on this building site in Southern California. Company was a startup; they had just mobile trailer park offices, basically, uh, sitting on this building site where they were building their their property. They had the land; they didn't have the building, and uh, I walked in and they wanted, to, it was a startup in the medical space. I didn't know anything about it, but I could program. And they said, we need programmers. And I said, well, I can, I'm your man, but, and they're, they're thinking on what their side of the desk, this, this guy's not going to want to work for a company in a, you know, in a trailer. Uh, and I'm on the other side of the desk going, I've just had 20 companies say no to me because I don't have a degree. So I'll take whatever the hell I can get. <laughs> so I took it and, uh, I had no idea that was Amgen, the world's largest biotechnology corporation. And I I got in at such a point where they gave you stock options over money and I was lucky enough to walk away from there five years later, a millionaire. So that was a kind of weird <laughs> irony. <laughs> it's like the, that right place, right time thing. Well, you, you, when you do something 20 times over, eventually, you know, it's that old Monty Python skit in Holy Grail where the – they build a castle in a swamp and it falls down. They build another one, it falls down, build another one, falls down, but eventually one stands up. That's That was my life back then. Yeah, I, I mean, I hear you. I, uh, I kind of took that journey too. I'm, I, you're talking right brain, left brain, and that whole, that whole scenario, and I'm kind of the same way. I have that artistic ability or artistic train of thought, but uh, by trade, I'm like a, a maintenance um, technician, troubleshooting, all that down that road. So this is kind of like the the artistic outlet for me. And then, yeah, working on stuff, figuring stuff out, building stuff is all that uh, that hard skills. So I, I definitely kind of get where you're saying, where they tug at each other and like, <laughs> no, pay attention to me. Let me give me some satisfaction for a while instead of just playing to that other guy. <laughs> Exactly. That's exactly how it feels. Oh, uh, so I see in your profile a lot, you talk a lot about financial sustainability. So mm -hmm. what is that? Define that for me. Um, is that residual income? Is that passive income? Is that a big bank account? Like what, what does that mean in your eyes? Uh, it doesn't really matter how you get there. It's just that you've got to be able to make 150% of your burn rate. That is your expenses. Uh, without having to do one lick of work. Okay. It's the it's the lazy man's answer to life, and it works really, really well. Um, right. The problem is that we don't – okay, there's a whole lot of problems that are interconnected, and you'll probably resonate with this, but 
Um, just as I've made money, I've lost money too. I, I lost money in divorce. I was in a massive car accident. I was in a coma for weeks. Um, I lost money suing governments because they wouldn't provide me health care. I lost money paying attorneys to represent me. I mean, I've gone from hero to zero to hero to zero so many times my head spins and at some point you sort of realise, what the hell am I doing, you know? Um, I could have lived a really traditional life. I could have had a nine to five and had, you know, 401k and health benefits and all of that and then one day, you know, I could retire and live off in the Bahamas. No. You see, uh, when I was 21, I had to bury my father because he passed away and he lived that 40-year company man life and it didn't pay off well for him. He, re he retired at 65. He died at 67. And I didn't want to go down that path. So yeah. I said, no, I ain't going to do it. So I did the polar opposite. And the weird thing is it's like, it's like a, a river and you're a fish swimming upstream and you've okay. got to be a good swimmer. Right, you've got to have a lot of muscle and tenacity and patience because you're fighting against the tide, and everybody else is going past you, going, "Hey, hey, come with us. This is easy. We're just going with the flow." They don't realize at the end of the river, this waterfall, and they're all going to die. Right. But at the but for me, I just kept heading upstream, and at some point, you know, I got to some ground on the side, and I managed to get out of the river, and I sat there watching everything else go by, and I started realizing I don't want to go back in that river. That's insane. You know, you're either going to fall to your death, which is what most people end up doing, or you're going to spend all your time grinding upstream trying to get some traction, and that's just going to be hard. I, I, get me out of here. And I found a couple of opportunities in life where I was able to do that. With, Financial analogy, with that analogy with the river, um, hmm. all I can think of is they get to the waterfall towards retirement, and all of a sudden they see it, and they're like, oh, shit. Like Exactly. Now I'm yeah. now I'm 60. I realize I haven't done anything. I don't have the financial resources to do it now because now I'm scraping by to make my retirement. What the hell do I do now? Right. That's exactly the case. And what I I came down really hard. I mean, look, I, we've had the last say 10 years. It's been a bull market and mm -hmm. everybody is out there high-fiving each other because they're making money on passive index funds. And the reality is nobody understands what the stock market is. Nobody is a broker. Nobody's ever, other than the Wall Street players, nobody's ever made money in a bear market. And yet we've got almost like a generation of people out there high-fiving themselves that they've made this money on Dogecoin or they've done, you know. And, and I, I look at it and I go, you don't get it, but that's okay. You will eventually, but you have to go around the block. You have to be able to fall flat in your face and then learn that you find the best of yourself dusting yourself off and coming back up from it. And if you don't go through that in life, you know, you, you can't feel you've mastered life in any, in any facet. Um, but that's, you know, look, I grew up in Australia when things on the ground would kill you everywhere you went and you learn that risk is life and life is risk and you learn to mitigate it and you just suck it up and move on and you move past that. And you don't let yourself get in the way of yourself and you just allow yourself to become a part of what's going on around you and seize opportunities when you can. Um, That's a crazy place down there. Everything it is. That's uh, <laughs> every, every growing up, we'd watch all the specials about Australia and stuff like that. I'm like, who would ever want to live there? Everything wants to kill you. 
It's probably a little different today because there's a bit more cement around, you know. But when I was there, I lived next to a massive national park and you, you'd go out in the summer and you'd hear the black snakes scurrying around in the grass near you and you'd be like, oh, shit, I'm out of here, man. And, you know, that's that was how it was. But you, you, you learn to become at one with things. And when you do that, you don't battle them as much. You look for synergy. And I've found that sort of worked really well all the way through my life. I mean, you asked before about financial sustainability. It's no different to any other form of sustainability. The whole idea is that you don't take more than you get given, right? And that's okay. If you want more to have, then find a way to get given more. And that means just either, you know, people say, oh, we'll work harder. No, it doesn't work like that. You don't work harder. You look for better opportunities, for better better choices. and uh, Work smarter. Well, look, I, I'll tell you something which I think is probably the, uh, the, the key to this that most people don't understand. And, it, and I can draw this in a very simplistic way. So when I was a teenager, I was a surfer. I wasn't always a good surfer. I couldn't. I, I sucked, right? But this is what you do in Australia because you live on the coastline. So me and my mates would go out on the weekend and somebody, you know, we'd all scrape together the petrol money and we'd head out into the best places where the surf was and we'd literally camp out there for a weekend and go out surfing thinking we could be really cool guys, you know. <laughs> no, we sucked and we didn't work it out. So you'd go out in the ocean and it didn't matter who you were out there with, you're out there on your own now and you're battling the, the waves and you're battling the reef and you're battling the rip and you're battling the sharks and you're battling everything. And then after a few hours, you're like, what the hell am I doing? This is not working. This is just too much work. I'm hit, getting hit in the back of the head by the surfboard every time I fall off. Why, why would I, who calls this entertainment? Right. But you keep Fine. at it. <laughs> what happens is after a couple of days of doing that, you start, and this is how all surfers learn how to surf you start realizing that you're nothing more than just a little grain of sand in the ocean right now, right? You're an atom. And the waves, they'll live there and they'll keep going far past your life expectancy. They'll still be out there doing waves. But if you start understanding, they, they come in sets. They're like these natural sort of cyclic sets. And you start learning how to read them and pick your wave. And then you start realizing that the only way that the wave will not see you as an adversary is if you've got to be in front of it and paddling like crazy. And when it, when you have that forward motion, even just a small amount of it, the wave doesn't reject you. It picks you up and you become part of it. And then it transfers all of its energy to you and you get this surface will tell you, it's like a spiritual experience. You get this sort of moment of Zen where power becomes upon you. And now you're firing around on the wave and, you know, you're like on a skateboard but on water, and it's amazing. I mean, it's like you, you do feel like you're touching God. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. After yeah, I, I, can, after, I can't I've, – I've never uh, – boogie board, uh, little like uh, on your stomach stuff, that's about all I've done, but I can – you can feel it. I mean, you can feel that power. I can only imagine being up on top of that and feeling one with it. Yeah. Well, it, here's the thing that's weird. You start – when you're out there waiting for the next wave, you get a lot of time to think. And, and what I did was I would analyze this and I would say, you know, hang on a minute. The only way this works, I have to be synergistic with this energy force, right? 
This sounds very hippie. It's not. <laughs> the truth is everything in our universe comes in cycles, in waves, in resonant waves. Things go up, things go down. We have a north and a south pole. If we didn't, the planet would go off kilter and we'd all die. The reality is the moon goes up and it goes down, the sun goes up, the seasons, blah, 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 right? And if you look at all things in the universe, like look at sound waves, they resonate. That's why we can talk. Look at electricity. It has alternating current. It resonates. Everything in the world resonates in cycles. When you start realizing that, as you would as a surfer, then all of a sudden you start realizing if I'm in, at the bottom of the wave and I'm paddling in front of it and it picks me up, I, it transfers its bounty to me. So I took that exact same analogy against stock market, Bitcoin, every form of commodity, and I'd look at patterns in waves, I'd look at charts and I'd look at them like a surfer would, and I'd look at the bottom of the wave and I'd go, when is this wave going to, you know, what do I see on the horizon? I'd pick my target, I'd get in front of it, I'd commit and I'd start paddling, which in this case would be engaged and buy some, and then I'd let the natural power of the universe pick it up and take it with me. And that's how I made my money, right? It doesn't take a high school graduate to do that. Anybody can do that. But Just if you don't... in tune. Right. It's, an, it, it, it's, a, it's being in tune with things that all around you, everybody will tell you, no, 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 you know, you've got to do it my way. It's, you know, you've got to go and get Vanguard index funds. You've got to go and put your money in a 401k because at 59 and a half, that's when you're going to need it. And oh. I'm looking at this going, at 29 and a half, I don't need it. I've already <laughs> made my money. Let's move on now, you know. And then this Look. whole concept of, retirement disappears because what are you retiring from? I got nothing in the world I want to leave and exit from. So why would I ever want to do that? Hence uh, I mitigate the risk of what my father had. Yeah. Uh, you, you say you're talking about resonating in the, in the surfing and I've really, my wife actually this weekend was six months uh, living barefoot doing um, grounding wow. and barefoot living and stuff like that. And she has to wear shoes every now and again. She got me to try it. Um, I've noticed a lot of being more in tune with energy and waves and uh, things like that since I've been, been in contact with the earth so much. And I think surfers might have that a lot too with the water, the sand. You're, I mean, you're always barefoot as a surfer uh, and mm -hmm. probably in Australia quite a bit as a kid, you're, you're barefoot. Um, mm -hmm. I think that, I think that really gives you more in tune with that wave, the, the wave phenomenon and stuff like that. Because once I started being barefoot, I saw it everywhere. Like I saw, mm -hmm. I heard it, I heard it mentioned, I saw it, I noticed it. Um, I think there is something to be said. And like you said, it's all hippie. Like, I mean, it is what it is. But if it works, but, it works, right? <laughs> right, right. Who cares what they call it? If if I can right. be more in tune with uh, with noticing patterns and and pattern recognition, man, it it just seems to me as the key to everything. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Things repeat, and that's normal. Um, things do repeat. We we all go through these repetitive cycles. It's how our life goes in those cycles. I mean, what my life experience will be from the day I was born to the day I die will probably not in direct contrast to everybody else, but they'll go through something similar at a certain age. We'll feel like we need to get married or we need to build a, a dwelling or we need to build an identity. And at another age, you feel like 
we've got to optimize what we've got. And another point of age, we've got to hoard like squirrels because we're all going to die. And at some point we all realize, well, what's the point now? We're all too old. We're just going to let it happen. That's, <laughs> that's a normal life. Well, you and I will have that same experience, right? And right. to pretend that one person knows it better than the other is stupid. We're all just another living, breathing organism. We're just going to go through the same thing. We, we give ourselves way too much credit sometimes. <laughs> yes. yes, for sure. For sure we do. I, I Yeah, I definitely appreciate that. The next the next question I had over here on my list was, uh, you kind of mentioned it, and um, but throwing away that traditional concept of retirement, um, it's always kind of irked me when I got my first job when I was 18. So I was born in 78. So then I've been like, uh, when I was eligible to do the 401k thing, what about in the mid 90s? Um, and they kept pushing this. And every job I would get, the guy would come in and say, you got to get the 401k, you got to get the 401k. And I, I, I got confused because I looked it up and I think it was 1977, 1978, like when I was born was the first time it had been there. And I understand that there's patterns and predictions and everything, but they're selling a dream that hadn't even been around long enough to prove that it was going to work. <laughs> True. And it's always like spun in my brain. And I would ask the rep every time I'd be like, okay, so when, when was this established? They're like, well, when you retire at 65, you'll have 189% of this. And I'm like, I will. Okay. Um, who have you shown that's done that? And and they just kind of look at you like, what? <laughs> so that's, that's something that's always stuck in my craw, but why is that? Is that why? Cause you're never going to get there the traditional retirement or like, what is your, what is your view on that traditional retirement um, that, that they've thrown out in this country, at least for quite a while? It's a lie. Okay. Now I can say that boldly, but let me explain why. Um, our government has a particular, I don't know, model that they want everybody to fall into. And that model is representative of what's good for them, not necessarily what's good for us. We, it's not about the fact, will they be able to fund social security and all those stupid questions? That, that's, that, that's in the margins. The reality is our very CDC, our very government center for disease control, has published over the last, I don't know, decade or so, an annual report on life expectancy of Americans, US male, US female. And if you have been paying attention to the report since, and I've been sort of following it since about 2014, every single year it goes down, not up. In 2016, the life expectancy of a US male was 79.5 years. In 2021, which I think was the last time I took any notice of it, it was at 75.3 years. So in the course of approximately five years, we had lost... Uh, was do the yeah, math four, four years of life four years. right so we're not living very long and we're living and compared you can say well compare that to other countries you know like if i lived in denmark i can live to 83 if you want to live in denmark until you're 83 sure that's i don't fine. live in denmark i live here <laughs> exactly and the thing is that um what what are we doing that makes us die earlier so I sort of had to try and find a way to validate that. So I reached out and did some research and I found that a, a quashed study done by Boeing Corporation a number of years back, which was publicized by the BBC, it was pretty much like stamped, stomped out of the media in the US. 
Um, what they did was they were trying to work out how much money they need to put aside for pension programs for their retirees. And so they calculate, well, how long are people going to live? Because if we can get a number there, we we can work out, you know, from the time they retire, how much money do we have to sock away and fund for their pension? So they started off by looking at the age of retirees who retired at the age of 55. And they calculated that average age life expectancy based on their actual numbers from their actual workforce was that these people lived into the age of 83. That was average. They then did the same study for those people who decided they wanted to keep working and retire at 65. At 65, the average life expectancy of their workers, 67 years. They lived for two years after they retired. So what they tried to do was to realize, well, if we can keep them working longer, we don't have to pay as much in pensions. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is I floated these numbers by somebody here in Phoenix uh, who works at Honeywell. And I, I said, look, these numbers seem unusual, but you're like Boeing. You're a big defense contractor, you know, aircraft machine, you know, engine manufacturer sort of thing. They came back to me and said, we got exactly the same numbers Boeing got. And so what I'm looking at is going, well, hang on. They want you to put money in a 401k. And so at 59 and a half, you're eligible to take it. Most people won't until they're 65, but you'll get two years to spend it. So hang on, who's winning here? Because mm -hmm. clearly you're not. So then well, they keep I, upping that too with like social security. And like, I, I can see you saying Boeing benefits by keeping people around longer because mm -hmm. they need less. Honeywell does. Well, so does the government too. If they keep, exactly. if they keep upping the, you got to work till X amount to get your little breadcrumbs. That's less breadcrumbs they got to give you if you're going to end up, they start later and they end sooner. Yeah, but it actually goes deeper than that because what I did was I sort of went, okay, well, I get that there's a, should we call it a, a, a cartel of lies coming from different people, right? Right. So, so then I thought, well, let's look at the front end of life. Let's look at the fact that, and I, and I have a 25-year-old daughter, so as a, as a parent, I've, I've been through this myself. Um, your kid is at high school. And they don't know what they want to do with their life. So they go to their student guidance counsellor, who is, let's face it, a public servant and not expertised in psychology or uh, life <laughs> because right. they work in a school. There's nothing wrong with working in a school, but most of them have never been out in the – they've never lived in China well, No, they for went to school or, and know. then they got a job at a school. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. So what happens is they're the ones advising these kids on what they should do with their life. So the kids don't know any better. So they're hearing and they, uh, you're, you're good at math, kid. You should be a comp sci major and whatever. Or you're, you're <coughs> excuse me, you're artistic. You should go and do uh, social media marketing or something. I don't know what they come up with. Anyway. Um, they they don't know how like, they come up with it either. No. And the parents, they're, they're struggling to keep their kid out of, you know, danger and harm's way. And, you know, they heard about little Johnny down the street who got into heroin. And so they're not going to, they're, they're scared. They're living in fear that their kid's just going to be okay. Right. So you, you do all of this. And then at the end of the day, the kid sits around at the dinner table with the parents and the parents will say, well, what do you think you want to do, you know, with your life? What, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the kid's like, well, I don't know, dad or mom, tell me what should I be? And they're like, um, 
Well, I don't know. Uh, what did your career guidance counselor say? Uh, okay, they said, well, go to college and, and get a degree and work hard and study and become a blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, you're 18 in a year or so. When the We'll get a college loan. We'll get one of these federal student loan things. And this 18-year-old kid is sitting at the dinner table with the parents in this contract of paper. They don't know what it is. And the parents are going, well, we don't want you to fall into harm's way and be like Johnny with the heroin addict. So we're going to we're gonna put you into college, but you've got to sign this contract because you're going to have to pay for it after you graduate. Right. And the kid's like, well, maybe I can have that college experience and I can go to the football games or be a cheerleader or whatever, you know. Okay, great. They can do all of that. And so they sign on the dotted line. The kid's 18 years old, legally able to sign a contract, but in most states, not legally able to go into a bar and buy a beer, right? Right. But they go down there and they sign $100,000 of debt. And then they go through and they do their four years of college. And then what statistics will teach us is that 65% of college graduates never pursue their major as their actual vocation. Yeah. So that was a stupid waste of money. So what did they get? Well, they got out of it the college experience. They got the socialization, the networking, and all the things that go with that. And sure, there's some value to that, but is it worth a hundred grand? I don't think so. And at and at the end of the day, until they pay that hundred grand off, they deferred their ability to buy a home because they come out years later, they they get some traction in the workforce, they start a career, and then they say, Well, you know, I want to buy a house. Okay, well, you're going to sign a mortgage for a house. Well, the French translation of the word mortgage is death contract. So they're signing a death contract for 30 years to buy a house that will keep them grounded in the one location. They won't have mobility. They will be stuck in this one area. And they're also shouldering $100,000 of student loan debt. They can't discharge even in bankruptcy. So they're stuck with that. So now they've got this massive nut Every month that they've got to pay, not taking into consideration their car, their food, their energy, their utilities, their insurances, whatever. And God they're forbid gonna... they get behind on payments and they start using credit cards on top of that. Right on. So all of a sudden, they've got to have a job. They can't leave it. They can't. They've got to do everything. They're fearful of anybody taking their job from them. They're fearful of the company going bust. They're fearful of their coworkers, uh, you know, getting the promotion they deserved and all that stuff. And they're stuck on the treadmill and they can't get the hell out of that treadmill. And this is life because for the next 30 years, the death contract says, this is what you signed up for. And then 401k happens and they hopefully they can get out of it. Well, again, statistics will tell us 27% of people at the age of 60 can afford to retire. These odds are not in our favor. No. And, I, and I, I'm somebody who did exactly the opposite. Never graduated high school, never went to college, lived in multiple countries, made my money by seeking out opportunities and just stubborn persistence. And at the end of the day, I start looking at this whole thing going, why is it that I did so well? And you, you people who are following the social mantra, what your tax policy tells you, what your government tells you, what your student advising council you, uh, is teaching, what your parents are telling you, how come you're getting the shit end of the deal? Why is it that, I, you know, cause I didn't. And that's, that's what it's about. And I, I just sort of realized like these poor people, man, these are good people. They're good people. They deserve better than this. 
And yet this is the lies they've been taught and told. I, I went down that road. I, I mean, my mom was a, my mom was a, a fifth grade teacher her whole life. My dad worked on, uh, was an optician, did, uh, did made glasses and things. Uh, I went to college. I failed out of college. Um, and then I started, I, I, I can't, I could, I shouldn't say I can't hold a job more than five years. I get bored. I need to move on. I start picking the company apart. Um, but I've never been afraid to start again. Like I've never been afraid to go from a, a higher wage to a lower wage to learn a new skill. My, my career has been basically learning skills at a job. And then I learn what I can and I burn my bridges and I leave and I go someplace else. Um, and we actually just sold our, our homestead in Minnesota and, and jumped in a, in a travel trailer, my wife and our three St. Bernards. And we're just kind of traveling around the country and, and taking opportunity as they come. Uh, and we're really noticing that opportunities are kind of presenting themselves. Uh, once mm -hmm. I let go, once I opened my eyes and I was willing to think about different th things differently, um, our path is kind of setting its own course. And it's it's kind of interesting to watch. Yeah, I, I honestly believe that if we can have the courage to do what you did, and that is to break free of normal, concrete, jungle, urban mentality and to go back to what what we were born with as as organic animals and live in that world, that the opportunity, you don't need as much. I mean, you said before about taking your shoes off and feeling the ground under your feet. How do you do that on asphalt? How do you do that on concrete? You can't do that in urban cities. We are so desensitized from what's really going on in the world that we'll listen to anybody tell us anything that sounds good at the time and go, oh, yeah, that. It's like, no, uh, we, we've got a responsibility to ourselves to realize our role. And it's so, it's so different coming from another country because you're not, you're not indoctrinated as much with, uh, you know, yeah, that's that. what I was going to ask you. Is this, is this just this uh, sinister plan here in the U S or is this, is this kind of worldwide or in pockets around the world? Well, it is exported to pockets. Okay. Really good question, man. I'll tell you the answer to this. It's got nothing to do with borders. It's got to do with bankers. Everything yeah. I've said to you has to do with bankers. I, I said this to a guy the other day. If you go back in history and you look at the old towns of Europe, if you've ever traveled through Germany or France or Spain or anywhere like that, there's a common thing you'll see with all of these sort of out towns out in the country. The center of the town is usually a church with a big steeple. Mm -hmm. And that's by design because the idea was that everybody would congregate into the town to worship at the church, to, to see the, the big steeple as a... The bell, kind of like the a, steeple. Yeah, like a call, a call to arms kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that would be the way that... And then from the church, the philosophy of life was dictated out to the village and that's how it was. Well, we don't have that anymore. What we have now are cities. But if you look at the tallest buildings in the cities, what do you see on the top of them? M&T Bank. Exactly. HSBC, UBS, Citibank, Chase. You see the banks. And then you see all the financial services that support the banks like, you know, Ernst & Young and KPMG and so on. And then it, it's this is what our world is. We don't worship faith like we did hundreds of years ago. We worship debt. 
because we've been told to worship debt. And by worshiping debt, we put ourselves in the position where we have no choices and we become slaves to whatever the bankers want. And the bankers have made cartel relationships with our political leaders and we see this in, in all countries in forms of corruption. We see this in forms of debt load. We look at our own country with $31 trillion of short-term debt on the book. Somebody's going to pay that back. You and I are responsible for that. Well, who gave it to them? The central bank, a private cartel of bankers. Again, it comes down to banking. Banking has become a religion and debt is the is the sovereign, you know, teaching of that religion. And that's our problem. If we were just to not believe in it, we could get our freedom back. It is would that, be that simple. Key? Is that the key yeah. to, to get out of debt? Totally. Because the second you don't have to show up for work because you're not shouldered with all this debt, then all of a sudden you get your life back, man. You get the right. choices. You can do what you do. You can do what I do. And then you can have real adventures. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I kind of go down this road and, and think, um, you know, you, you're taught, you're taught debt can be powerful and it can, it can, I'm not, I'm not denying that, but that's, that's the bankers are using the debt you're taking and then making money off your debt. So it's very powerful for them. Um, and there are ways to manipulate debt. I mean, I understand that. And, um, but I just don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to play that game. I don't need to, I can, I can go a different route. That's not the only way leveraging debt is not the only way to be financially secure and have that trap of falling into toxic debt. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's such a slippery slope. Yeah, it is. And, and of course, toxic debt makes the bankers more money because the interest rates are higher. So yeah, of course they want you to do that as much as they'll say, Oh, you know, and, and he, you know, we have this, social credit score in the United States. We call it FICO. Yeah. It's how much it's how much debt uh, attractiveness are you to the lender, right? And, <laughs> yeah. and we teach our kids straight out of college, you've got to get yourself a credit card and get your FICO score going. You've got to get this number up because it's the only way you're going to be. What a load of crap. Who yeah. cares what the banker thinks of me if I don't need their money? Really? <laughs> it's funny. We, we accumulated, so we built a homestead over eight to 10 years and we, we accumulated some decent debt for infrastructure and this and that. And mm -hmm. long-term it would have been sustainable as, as business expenses. And, but as we decided we were going to move on, we were going to sell, we were like, okay, what do we do? Do we cover this with the mortgage and this and that? So credit scores were okay. We make our payments. We never, we never extended beyond making payments, but you know, it was kind of on that top end of where your credit score is kind of fluctuating and stuff. So we sold our house and we started paying off those debts and watching your credit score change with them paid off. And it was funny to watch it go up and then back down mm -hmm. because I paid off too much. I paid <laughs> off too much debt. Like yeah. it went up, it went up, it went up. And then like my truck loan cleared and the last credit card cleared and it went and it jumped yeah. down. And it said, you have too low of balance to available credit. Too and low? I'm like, too low. <laughs> okay. I'm like, wait a second. So you are going to keep my score higher if I carry a debt load. But we had nothing. Like when when I when that final one went through, it was just zero. And they were like, uh-uh, that's not good. Wow. <laughs> this guy figured it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So 
if you go down this sort of, I mean, if you really want to think this through even further and you follow down my weird rabbit hole here, um, <laughs> if, if the bankers are the ones that can cross boundaries and borders and don't care, or the countries that they can practice in are typically the most likely to fall prey to this problem. So every westernised country is typically banker-driven, mm-hmm. and they'll use the same model in here, in Canada, in Australia, in the UK, in Europe. But if you go to countries which rejected debt at a basic level, you'll find life is very different. And I discovered this. We live in um, Arizona, so we're on the border with Mexico. Mm-hmm. I'm an immigrant. I came to the United States when I was 25 and, you know, fought the battle to get my legal residency status and then became a citizen. And I did it by choice, by action. Now, I don't see borders like people see borders. I, I see borders like birds see borders. There isn't anything there unless it's some sort of geographical natural thing. Like I come from an island, which is oceans are its border. That's it's not borders. <laughs> yeah. But I don't see these borders like I don't recognize them. I think that, and that might sound really weird because I know, you know, politically there's this big, you know, uh, debate about immigration and, oh, my God, all these, you know, bad people are going to come. I don't believe in borders either, man. I I just don't even believe in the whole state in general, so. Right, right on. Well, this is the thing. It's, It's, if you start reducing, if you think, well, there's no border, then I started going south into Mexico a lot. I mean, I'd go in there because I could get things cheaper. I could get dental really cheap. I could get optical cheap. I could get pharmaceutical cheaper. And then I started, the food was just tasted better and it was like more wholesome and it seemed more natural. And then, you know, you could get a beer for 50 cents and it was tacos for, you know, three for a dollar or something. And I'm like, who wouldn't want this? And look at these beaches, they're gorgeous and the sand and it's like virgin territory. And the only difference is I don't speak Spanish. So maybe I could learn a little Spanish or whatever, but this is amazing. So I'd go down to Mexico all the time. And then eventually it got to the point where my wife and I went down to to Mexico City and then we started buying up land in central Mexico because we could see that the Mexican people were going to be replacing with their output what we were buying from China. We could see it. it was bleeding obvious to us when we saw all these massive industrialization of factories. So we thought, well, this would be a good investment. Oh, yeah, really good. And so we bought an acre of land which is like a compound. You used to have a bullfighting ring in it. We bulldoze that and we've got this beautiful plot of land. We're building this gorgeous home and I'm building a recording studio in there, which goes back to my musical days. But I learned something about Mexico and I realised there's one difference between their country and the United States. They don't have debt. When uh, dealing with any sort of calamity, like even COVID, the government didn't start writing stimmy checks. Right. The government said, suck it up, people. You're going to have to get through this. And they just did. And they're stronger for it. And, and the result is if you speak to anybody, you just walk into a store and get a torta or, you, you know, whatever, and you're just looking at people, they're happy, mm-hmm. they're family-oriented, they're lively, they're embracing of everything. And despite the way they get treated in the press, which is all BS, the reality is it comes down to the fact that they don't have debt. 
Like they even their property, you can't get a mortgage to buy a property in Mexico. They don't even, it, you know, it's rare. I mean, no one would take one. Properties are passed down from through the family from right, right, right. parents to children and so on. And and that's how this country works. And I, I started realizing they got it right. They got everything right. I mean, we don't give them credit. And yet they're right there. We've got so much to learn from this and we just don't get it. And man, I tell you, I and so nowadays I spend probably 75% of my time in Mexico because yeah. It just, yeah, the sun shines, the weather's fantastic, the, yeah. the tacos are everywhere, the people are great, <laughs> and who wouldn't want that? Um, I'm not, I'm, yeah, I'm not saying that it's for everybody, but I'm saying that it's, a, it's an actionable example of the theory of everything that I've been talking about in life right. that we, if we get rid of all of the hypnosis and the bullshit, we've been, the, the mantra we've been fed, and get back to who we are as a species, and then all of a sudden, everything calms down. And everything starts making sense again. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we, one uh, day we, we shut up. We shut off the TV um, years ago. Uh, we haven't mm -hmm. owned a TV in in years. We rarely will we'll watch a movie on like Amazon Prime because we use it for the shipping service and it comes with it. Um, but other than that, we haven't watched a news broadcast, a TV, um, and the way our life changed when you didn't have that constant programming coming into your ears. Um, the biggest thing I noticed when we stopped watching TV was when I would go to a store, I didn't want to buy everything. I didn't oh, want to right. go and randomly buy shit that I saw on commercials that I didn't even know I wanted. I didn't want, I thought I wanted. So I'd walk down the aisle of the store and I'd be like, Oh, I should get that. Oh, I should get that. And I'd get home and be like, why, why am I buying all this stuff when we stop watching TV and all those commercials and uh, and product placement and shows and things like that wasn't pounded in my head all the time. I'd walk to the store and I'd get what I went to the store for. I was right. like, and it dawned on me. I was like, oh, what change happened? That's the, interesting. It's, it's the programming. <laughs> it is. But it is. You, were, you were mentioning about Mexico and that they've got it right. Uh, I worked with a lot of guys from Ecuador in the hospitality industry in, in Minnesota, uh, and the majority of them live together. So their their plan, I got to know them pretty well. Their plan was they were here. They'd come here when they're 18 and they'd live in an apartment with seven other guys and they'd work three jobs and they'd retire at 28. Like they send all their money they made back to Ecuador and then they just go back to Ecuador and live like kings because mm -hmm. they work their ass off for 10 days uh, for 10 years. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, well, that kind of makes sense, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Front loading your your uh, process, process, right? But what what we do is we borrow it. Yep. So we borrow that money to front load it because we we want it now. We want to get started now. There's a right. sense of uh, time optimization, but there really isn't and then we end up spending the rest of our lives paying that off hoping that it worked where we know that there's a high chance that it's not going to. Um, yeah. But no, I get, I get that. I mean, yeah, I, I just would wish that we, maybe we, maybe we don't need all of that, that uh, ambition and that desire to fly to Mars and all of that. Maybe, maybe that's not what we need. Maybe what we need to do is to get back in contact with who we are first work out what really makes us happy 
and then pursue whatever it is with that. Maybe if you want to fly to Mars, it makes you happy. <laughs> Go for it, Elon. Do your thing. I think, you know? I, I think what you, when you really realize what you need to survive as a human and you strip that down to the basics and you go, okay, if I have enough food to keep my body working, if I have enough shelter, you know, just the basic survival needs, water, food, shelter, um, and start building from there, you really realize what you, the, all the things you don't need that mm -hmm. you're convinced that you do need. Now, don't get me wrong. Luxuries are awesome. A nice, comfortable bed or all of that makes life easier. It makes more, more comfortable. But do we actually need it? Or are we told we need it? Or do right. we desire it? Well, you know, you can have this difference, you know, uh, the old Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I think, throws in comes into play here where you've got physiological needs that you need for survival. And then you have your utilitarian needs, which you need to be able to sort of exist and thrive, like, you know, healthcare and all that stuff. And then, um, you know, then the other stuff, the esoteric stuff, which makes your life a little more like having a nice phone or something like that. Well, right. fine, but you're going to spend all day looking at it or are you going to go out there and make some money? I mean, I don't right. know. <laughs> uh, or are you going to go and toil crops in the field and make them grow? I mean, you know, we've got a certain amount of time when the sun's up, so we should probably take advantage of that, right? But um, Literally having, and figuratively. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but having said that, you know, then if you can somehow get beyond that and you get to that quest to self-actualize, like that, you know, road to nirvana, your goal then is to give back. It's, right. to, it's to sort of throw rope down and say, here, I'll haul you guys up the, up the pyramid. Um, and that's a good thing. And if we can go through that psychologically, we – we feel fulfilled in some manner. Um, I've been lucky enough. I, I've gotten to the top. I've fallen off it a couple of times, but I've gotten up there. But if I can, if I can do that in some meaningful way, I mean, the biggest gift I think that it, that we can all give. I, I was watching some, you know, typical <laughs> Hallmark TV channel Christmassy crap that's going on right now. Um, watching that sort of thing and they're all like feeling all warm and cozy or like the gift of giving we were about giving and i'm looking at this going i sort of asked myself well what what am i doing this year i'm i'm going to be guilted out to go and spend the morning of christmas day working in a homeless shelter because that's what they're telling me to do well i'd feel a bit un, not authentic if i did that because the reality is i should be doing that today not then Right. I mean, every day would be a good idea. However, having said that, what am I giving back? And I started realizing the biggest thing that I can give is a message. And the message is, you know, I feel like sex pistols, you know, you've all been lied to, <laughs> you know, just, and, and, and maybe that's, a, that's the gift that needs to be given because the guys who are in the homeless shelter are in there because they got evicted because they couldn't pay their rent because their landlord was paying a mortgage to a bank and these guys lost their jobs and they were too leveraged. Yep. Okay, how about we change that dynamic and then we wouldn't be in the homeless shelter and I wouldn't have to go down there and feed them. Right. And that, to me, that's where it starts. We start with changing our mindset on what we think the right things to do in life to have a, a, a rich and successful, meaningful life is because nine times, no, 99 times out of 100 that I see people attempting to address that question, they get it fatally wrong every single time.
tells the that great uh that great saying what is it you uh you give a guy a fish you'll eat for a day you teach him how to fish and he'll eat for the rest of his life totally so totally you uh but you, you, teach you give a guy a meal at a homeless shelter and he'll eat that day but you teach him right. you teach him how to get out of the situation and uh, yeah you don't have to feed him anymore right and then he can be on a path to self-actualize like all of us i mean it's just how how i just think it's how things should be and I am an outcast, dude. I mean, I'm not. I'm the fish swimming up the stream or on the side of the bank watching everybody else. I'm not the guy who will tell you how to maximize your Roth IRA or what you know what stock to invest in or something like that because the whole thing's a, a casino. I'm okay. Going yeah, so, to, so your you podcast, know. your podcast is. So is that the kind of the road you go down on your podcast? Is that uh, the the different way to kind of tackle or tell us about your podcast? I started it off as a message to my daughter when she was graduating uh, college because I put her in college against my best interest and thinking that this was the right thing to do because that was what society – I was I was the parent who was fearful for my kids' safety. You know, I wanted them to not be out there on their own, you know. I realise now in retrospect it's the worst possible thing I could have done, but it was kind of like as a as – a, not a – not a gift or not a validation, but as a as a way for dad to be able to try to put together a, a, a real curriculum without being preachy where she wouldn't listen <laughs> to what I was saying. So I started trying to uh, use audio to capture a series of, of, I guess you'll call them lessons on why things are the way they are and what you need to do to change the dynamic, where you can start, how you can, you know, each part of it from money through to personal freedom, civil liberties, uh, health care, all of the things that you have control over that you can take back control individually and do yourself. And I tried to explain what I had done and how it worked out. And I didn't realize that it wasn't just her who needed to hear it. It was every other graduating member of her class. They were all getting into it. And then it resonated and the next thing you know, everybody started to hear it. And I was also kind of swept up into this world of all these people who were doing the, what they, I guess what they call the FIRE movement, the financial independent retire early movement. Yep. And they were of my daughter's age and I started teaching and, and speaking at events uh, for that. And I started to realize that they don't get the, they don't, they, it's like, um, you can, if you're an addict to something, you can go and get, you know, go to an AA class and you can deal with it and they'll probably stop you being an addict for a while. But unless you address the reason why you seeked out artificial, uh, you know, comfort, it, it will just happen again and it will continue to happen again. And what I was seeing was all of these people that were, almost acting like in a cult-like mentality to seek out this retire early model because they didn't want to work. And I'm looking at well, work is a horrible concept. It, if you're doing what you love, there's no work involved. You're doing what you, what your authentic self is right. and therefore you would never want to stop doing it. So why would you ever want to retire? It seemed like you're, you're asking the wrong question. It's not about how do I retire early. It's about 
how do I restructure the substance of my life so I'm doing what I love doing so I never want to retire from it ever? And yeah. that, that question was never asked. And so it kind of was very hard to be able to teach them how to be sustainable financially and how to be, you know, have, have good health and how to have good purpose. Um, it was very, very hard. And then I met up with a guy, um, I'm not sure if you've heard of him, by the name of Gary Collins. Oh, yeah. Who does it. Well, Gary passed away this year and oh. Gary was a, yeah, he did. Um, Gary is a very good friend of mine. Gary and I used to have lunch every couple of weeks. In, uh, he lived somewhere down in Arizona outside of mm-hmm. Tucson, and I'd go down there every couple of weeks, and we'd just hang out, and we became really, really close friends. And, uh, yeah, it was a very un- unexpected and shocking thing. But Gary spent most of his life working in the in both in the military and then in the federal mm-hmm. government, and then he rejected all of that because – he started to realize the the lies that he was being told to tell other people and and he didn't agree with it and then he left to go and live what he calls the simple life and yep. much like what you're doing i suspect he he went out and got a homestead built his own property became 100% sustainable um, grew his own food had his dogs and focused on health and purpose and I could see everything that he was doing and I'm like, dude, that's it. You got it. You're the first person I've ever met who got it. And it was like we have these deep, meaningful conversations all the time. I was in his show so many times. He was on mine as well. And I thought that's the answer. And now, um, yeah, he passed away uh, this year and unfortunately I'm – I've sort of taken it upon myself to carry his legacy and uh, try to teach that, but from a different angle, from a an angle not from somebody who served, somebody who gave loyalty to his government and then kind of went off on his own, but from my point of view as an immigrant, um, how somebody from the outside can look upon this thing and come to the same conclusions he came to, and and that's become really the focus of what I do now. Yeah, I mean, if you come from if you come from two different two different starting places and you end up at the same conclusion, I mean, there's got to be something to that, right? That's exactly what happened for us. We did. We both. It was like this. You got to this conclusion that way. I got it this way. But we got the same conclusion, dude. Let's go have a yep. beer. <laughs> right. It was, right. It right. was for great. Sure. You know. For sure. Um, for sure. Yeah, I miss um, that guy. I really will. I, uh, I, I got exposed to Gary from, uh, Jack Spierko's podcast, the, the survival ah, podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was on there quite a bit. Um, and Jack talked about very highly of him. So I kind of dug, dug into him a little bit when he did, but I, I did not hear about his passing. So I, I'm sorry for that, uh, that you lost a, a close friend like that. Um, but we are kind of right in an hour. Do you have any uh, any kind of final messages for my audience? Uh, I will definitely have all your information in my show notes um, and and send them to the beunconstrained.com website and uh, definitely promote that. But any parting messages, anything that you kind of want to leave with them? Um, yeah. And then I'll send them your way to find out more. Well, I, I'd actually commend them for listening to you, <laughs> which is a an unusual thing to say. What, what I mean by that is there are very, very few people who have had the courage to do what you do and to realize why. And that will 
it's a work in progress like it is for all of us. That will continue to evolve. And I think that by doing it, you're sending them a clear message about what they also could do. I, I would say that your audience would be listening to you because they're probably looking at what you're doing going, maybe I should do that. Maybe I'm, I can get out of this rut. Maybe I can break free. And, and that's a beautiful thing because, yeah, they are in a rut. And if anything, I validate what you're doing because I can tell you coming from it from a totally another angle, um, you know, I'm 58 years old. I'm probably older, but I've come to the same conclusion all through my life. And it's been, I think that there's the people who probably are watching your show are wise enough to have something stuck in their craw that would say, I too need to break out of this mess. Yeah. Um, and what you're doing sends a, a clear message of action to them that it's possible. And I guess I, I'm in the same boat as you. I'm trying to send a clear message that it is absolutely 100% possible. And if anything, I validate them for at least seeking you out. So I think that's a good thing. I appreciate that, Miles. That's that's fantastic. I, I really do. I really appreciate that. And uh, I hope my audience listens to you. <laughs> And, uh, and realizes that they're doing the right thing listening to me. Um, but no, I, I really appreciate it. That's a great compliment. And um, yeah, having come to the same conclusion as you from another another perspective is it's really, um, really encouraging. So uh, like I said, I'm going to definitely get all your information in and I encourage everyone to check out the Unconstrained podcast or head on over to beunconstrained.com. And uh, yeah, check out Miles. Miles, I really appreciate you coming on. It was great chat. And uh, I'm going to let you get back to the rest of your day and enjoy your unconstrained life. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Oh.